pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use of copyrighted material is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news, reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 44 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. It bears repeating, and it benefits us to repeatedly hear this in this age of rampant sin, that God is sovereign. He has all the power and authority in heaven and on earth, and there's no purpose of his that can be thwarted, says Job in chapter 42, verse 2. Nevertheless, it should be plain that God does not directly control every event. He did not create a universe of puppets whose strings are constantly being manipulated by the great puppeteer in the sky. God is sovereign, but he delegates some of his power and authority downward to people and living beings that exercise their own independent judgment and control over the things that God gave them to control. This is where people can get confused about how and why things work the way they do. Some people believe that God makes all the decisions, and some people believe that God makes none of the decisions. The truth is that God makes all of the decisions that he wants to make, and he observes the decisions that he allows others to make. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12.14 This is the nature of the unchanging spiritual truth that the world strives to ignore and even arrogantly pretends does not exist. God allows people to make decisions, notes the decisions they make, and will bring those decisions into ultimate judgment at the appropriate time. He knows the truth, and he knows the lies. Take, for example, the ongoing climate war. It's not a real war that is being waged against a real climate enemy, but it is a real war that's being waged against humanity under the cover of a climate change lie. And it's not even that climate change itself is a lie, because the climate changes all the time. If there is one thing that characterizes the earth over time, it is its constantly changing climate. People used to know this, having been taught in school that we are in an interglacial period among a series of glacial episodes that define this most recent part of Earth's history. The climate changes and it gets colder. Massive ice sheets return to the continents and elephants grow lots of hair to stay warm. Then the climate changes and it gets warmer. The massive ice sheets collapse, melt away, and we get the Great Lakes and Chicago. Within these larger warm and cold periods, there were hundreds of abrupt reversals of climate, some on the order of just a few dozen years and some much longer, all of which resulted in some kind of climate chaos. Over the last 2.5 million years of Earth's history, there have been at least 20 glacial periods which last about 50,000 years, with another 50,000-year warm period between each one. So on average, we get a new ice age every 100,000 years. The peak of the last ice age is called the Wisconsinan period. It occurred about 20,000 years ago. By 12,000 years ago, most continental glaciers had collapsed and melted away. So much water had been trapped in the continental ice sheets that the worldwide sea levels had dropped about 450 feet from their pre-ice age levels. When the ice melted, all that meltwater returned to the ocean basins and caused a corresponding rise in ocean levels. That is a change of 450 feet over 8,000 years, which, if we do the math correctly, is a rise of one foot every 20 years or so, or five feet per century over an 8,000-year period. But sea level didn't rise in a steady, consistent progression. There were periods when, if you'd been around, you could probably have watched the water rise it came up so fast. Whole cities were submerged along the ancient coastlines, And all this happened long before fossil fuels and automobiles and modern agriculture had been invented. In the olden days, say the 1960s and 70s, this used to be basic educational material. But then globalism happened, and the globalist tyrants needed a conveniently accessible, prolonged, and plausible crisis to enable them to destroy much of humanity and our free democratic institutions so that they can take over and establish a tyrannical, demented hell right here on Earth. To help them accomplish this deception, they founded the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to, bent fingers, prove that climate change is real and that it requires humanity to commit national, economic, cultural, financial, and physical suicide to, bent fingers, 
save the Earth. Al Gore and John Kerry are so dedicated to promoting the story that the world will be destroyed in just one decade that they're willing to do anything and kill any number of people to have you believe it. Anyone who openly and proudly declares war on the very substance that enables 7 billion people to stay alive has got to be a demented globalist mass murderer. They and their globalist cohorts are doing everything in their collective power to destroy fossil fuels, and by doing so, they condemn most of the world's population to a painful and lingering death of starvation and climate exposure. But to Al and John, just destroying fossil fuels is not going to bring about the death and destruction quickly enough. They want to accelerate the democide by destroying the very agriculture we depend upon to eat just so that they can save the Earth from a naturally occurring gas that all life on Earth needs to survive. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate John Kerry declared in May of 2023 that agriculture generates a third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions and reducing those emissions must be, quote, front and center, end quote, in our quest to defeat global warming. Clearly, if you useless eaters would just stop eating all that food that keeps you alive, Al and John and all their friends over there at the WEF would not have to take such drastic measures to save the planet from overheating. All of this, of course, is a lie. Carbon dioxide, what they are calling carbon, does not in any way warm the climate, as has been repeatedly demonstrated by real scientists who do not have skin in the game of satanic deceptions and government funding over their existence. If anything, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere follows the warming and cooling cycles of the Earth as evidenced in atmospheric air bubbles and trained in the remaining glaciers around the world, principally in Antarctica and Iceland. Carbon dioxide does not drive warming and cooling. It responds to warming and cooling because the Earth's carbon cycle is dynamic. In fact, if you want to look across all of the Earth's very long history, what we see is that we are living in an era with a dangerously low carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere compared to most other eras. Do you know how much carbon dioxide we are talking about? According to the Tome of All Human Knowledge, Wikipedia, the Earth had 421 parts per million of carbon dioxide in its atmosphere as of May 2022. That is an atmospheric percentage of 0.0421% carbon dioxide makes up four one-hundredths of one percent of the atmosphere. Other gases of substantial warming ability include nitrogen at 78.8%, oxygen at 20.95%, water vapor at approximately 1%, and even argon at 93.93%. Now, if we tell people that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is going to double in some purported period of time, we can certainly make it sound ominous and terrifying. But even if that were true, doubling the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide would raise the Earth's atmospheric composition from 0.04% to 0.08%, which is still less than one-tenth of one percent of the atmosphere. As a standard of reference, to make it easier to understand what these numbers mean, our current 421 parts per million of CO2 should be compared to the concentration of CO2 in time periods when life on Earth was thriving, such as the era of the dinosaurs. Back then, the Earth had CO2 levels as high as 8,000 ppm, 20 times higher than today. Contrary to Al and John's public claims in front of the World Economic Forum, the Earth did not burn up, oceans did not boil away, and climate-induced migration did not occur at our southern wide-open border. Maybe uncontrolled migration has more to do with the promise of an iPhone, a pocket full of money, food, and housing for anyone who wanders across the make-believe southern border, all courtesy of the American taxpayer. Humanity is being gaslit on a scale that's almost unimaginably evil, and yet there seems to be no end to the special interest groups who have bought into this not very believable deception. Children's Health Defense just ran a story, for example, about a group calling itself Climate Justice, which is trying to shut down America's natural gas export terminals. I often agree with Children's Health Defense positions, so I'm surprised and very disappointed that they would seemingly side with this clueless tool of the globalist tyrants. Climate justice wants insurers to stop insuring these terminals, which they believe will help to shut them down. The Defender, a publication of Children's Health Defense News and Views, wrote, The letter from Climate Justice to Insurance Companies points to other climate impacts driven by the continued expansion of liquefied natural gas and other fossil fuels, including storm surges, flooding, and sea level rise, which has already affected the site of one proposed LNG terminal, liquefied natural gas, in Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana. 
after Hurricane Ida in 2021, Plaquemines Parish was underwater for three weeks, the group wrote. Plaquemines Parish is one of many localities in the coastal U.S. south facing major sea level rise and land loss related to rising global temperatures. My head spins when I read stuff like this. So, burning fossil fuels ostensibly causes storm surges, flooding, and sea level rise. I guess there must not have been any storm surges or flooding before the advent of the Industrial Revolution. The Bible clearly doesn't know what it's talking about with all that talk of flood stuff and storms. It doesn't talk specifically about storm surges in the quiet backwater of the Middle East, but maybe that's because storm surges are a thing that happen in areas where hurricanes come onto land from the ocean and push ocean water into low-lying land areas. The last time I checked, the Middle East doesn't get hurricanes, and most of the land that's described in the Bible is mountainous and located far above sea level. But gosh, why not blame lowland floodplains on global warming? I wonder if these people think that staying warm in the winter by heating our homes causes earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and tornadoes, too. Maybe the Earth will stop getting pelted with meteorites if we just destroy the fossil fuel industry and start buying warm woolly mammoth blankets and fur seal moccasins. Because, of course, fossil fuel burning causes sea level rise. When you hear this stuff, just keep in mind that the ocean level rose 450 feet in 8,000 years, or over 5 feet per century, every century over the entire 8,000-year period. Or, if you want more evidence that sea level rise is hysteria and not truth, consider the pilgrims. They landed in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620, and when they got out of the dinghy that brought them over to the land from their ship, they tied it to a little rock by the ocean and then graffitied the rock for all posterity to remember and honor. That little rock is still sitting right where it was when they found it, on a small beach right next to the ocean. The ocean has not overwhelmed it and drowned it in the 403 years that have transpired since the pilgrims first spotted it sitting there. Just to kick a dead horse here, sometimes water comes up over land for reasons other than global warming. Believe it or not, land has a habit of rising and falling for all kinds of natural reasons. The Mississippi River Delta and the Nile Delta, for example, are slowly being eroded and covered with water, not because the sea level is rising, but because we build dams and other artificial barriers to the natural migration and deposition of the silt and sand that makes a delta. A delta is a dynamic earth feature. When our engineers starve the delta of the material that makes the delta, it will slowly wither away and die. Soil will be eroded, and the ocean will appear to slowly encroach over the area, especially during storm events. See? This kind of geomorphic feature of the Earth used to be well understood and accepted by educated individuals, but today, those inconvenient facts get in the way of the good story that justifies all the draconian actions that our governments are taking to destroy any semblance of normality for life here on Earth. While we fret and whine about climate change from carbon dioxide that plants desperately need for food, we say nothing about the massive machines that our governments build that beam a billion watts or more of electromagnetic energy into the atmosphere just to play around with weather events and trigger earthquakes and cause untold amounts of atmospheric destruction. We have the erector sets that are needed to destroy an awful lot of stuff, but one thing we can't do is fundamentally alter the climate. That privilege belongs to God. Or, if you are more atheistically minded, it belongs to physical systems that induce oscillations in the Earth's orbit and axial inclination, not to mention that induce solar activity, all of which affect the climate down here on the ground. See, I know this because I'm a geologist. But it is really God who controls it. So, just how did we get to this point of such widespread gaslighting and ignorance regarding the weather? Well, if we go back far enough, it all started with an idea from God. For whatever reason, God decided to construct a reality that has two components. The first component is spiritual reality, and the second component is physical reality. He wrote the rules under which both parts of reality would operate and how and when they would interact. For whatever reason he had in mind, human beings were created to be partly in and partly out of each reality. So in a way, the problem began right there. Some people are so firmly rooted in physical reality that they cannot or will not recognize the other half of reality. 
They love to quote science as if it is the end-all and be-all of defining reality, but all science does is identify and quantify the physical rules of existence. It doesn't say anything about the other half of reality that has a tendency to affect everything on this half of reality. In Romans 1.20, it says that God's eternal attributes are clearly seen in the creation, and God is spirit, so studying the creation should lead perceptive people to discern not just something of God, but something of spirit as well. The reason why Christians discovered and articulated the main scientific principles that we take for granted today is because they wanted to know more about God. They figured if his attributes are so clearly seen in the creation, then they would learn something about God just by studying the creation systematically. That insight eventually led to the intelligent design movement, a scientific understanding that the universe exhibits clear and unmistakable evidence of having been designed by an intelligent entity. Atheist scientists, of course, cannot stand that kind of talk because atheism is a philosophy that goes out of its way to deny the existence of God. Atheists love to rail against the intelligent design arguments, and they do everything in their collective power to mock, marginalize, and silence the intelligent design supporters. They are convenient foot soldiers of a spirit they do not know, one which exercises effective control over their sad little lives. God is sovereign, and he wrote the rules of existence, and then he created a whole bunch of creatures to share this reality and that reality with him, including people. Once the universe was populated with intelligent thinking entities, they needed some kind of governing structure to keep them in line because intelligent thinking entities have this bad tendency to get themselves into a lot of trouble. So God created government. At the top of government sits God, but God is too kind and good to not share his invention with others. So he allowed his creations to exercise some degree of autonomy and discretion in their own decision making. In his kindness, grace, and compassion, he extended the authority of rulership down to his creations on the ground so they could express and practice some degree of authority themselves. Just as kings delegate authority to their court and provincial officials, so too does God delegate authority downward to those he places in power, foremost of which is mankind. In Genesis 1.28, God delegated his authority to us by commanding us to have dominion over the earth. It reads, then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is a sovereign God granting authority to humanity, which is a downward transfer of authority to enable us to take charge of the earth that he created for our use, entertainment, development, and discovery. The earth is not a fragile, delicate bubble that we can easily manipulate and destroy, but it's a rugged, durable, healable, dynamic, living world that we have to struggle to gain control over. Because this world keeps us so busy, God delegated to other authorities the responsibility to look after, teach, and guide the human authorities. He gave this responsibility to the angels, who are spiritual beings he created in a different order than we physical human beings. God did not give the angels authority over the physical earth because that is our territory or domain, but instead he gave them authority over us. They were not only to teach us God's ways so that we can live for the glory of God, they were to establish justice among the men of the earth. The problem is that these angels never implemented their instructions in a way that's consistent with God's intentions. Instead, they sought to teach men deception, lying, and violence in order to gain control over the creation through the men who controlled it. In addition to teaching us all the wrong things, the angels took advantage of their more perfect and powerful physical form to induce men to worship and serve them rather than God, thereby stealing our loyalty from God for their own personal glory. This is the era in Earth's history when civilizations were created and the pantheons of gods, little g's, took shape as recorded on stones and in clay tablets all over the world, but especially in the Middle East. The Bible also speaks of this time period, but only briefly. In a meeting with his angelic leadership in Psalm 82, verses 1 to 6, God lamented the angel's obstinate failure to be effective agents of his authority on Earth. It reads, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. 
they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. The gaslighting of human beings obviously started a long time ago, but the angels did much worse than simply fail to judge human actions impartially. As the ancient echoes of antiquity testify, the angels left their spiritual abode and entered the physical world of mankind to not only corrupt and pervert justice, but in the words of the great Apostle Paul, to do many things that were not fitting. Some of those things are recorded in Genesis 6, 1-2, where it describes what ultimately secured the angels' downfall. It says, Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Just as the ancient myths recount, the gods, small g, cross-bred with human women to produce something that was not quite human and not quite angel. The Bible calls these hybrid creatures Nephilim. In Genesis 6 verse 4 it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God, the angels, came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. They were men of such renown that mythological stories were created to honor their lives and exploits. Just as described in the mythical echoes from the past, Satan's spiritual forces penetrated the physical world that had been set apart by God for humanity and began to directly and adversely change life on earth at a very fundamental level. It was an attack on life itself, physical as well as spiritual life, and it was taking place through the genetic manipulation of species. It was so serious a violation of God's order that God himself had to stop it violently and permanently. He documented this operation in Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like men. You will fall like every other ruler. Their immortal bodies suddenly became mortal and they died along with most of the Nephilim when the flood devastated the earth. After those infamous angels died, God had their souls locked away for a future day. The Apostle Peter commented on this when he said in 2 Peter 2 verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and this is where they are being held in spiritual chains today, confined and locked in the abyss, which is a place of holding for spiritual beings of great intelligence and power. Peter's thoughts were complimented by Jude in 1 Jude 6, where it says, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, this little factoid is quite important. These angels are not just sitting there waiting for a court proceeding. They are being held in order to be released again onto the earth so that they can be judged in the great day of God's wrath on the earth, and that day is rapidly approaching. Judgment in this context means destruction. They are future participants in the judgment of not only themselves, but of mankind, and most specifically, the Antichrist and his government. You might ask why God permitted these angels to behave this way if it's going to get them in so much trouble. Was he taken off guard by their behavior or caught by surprise? No, not at all. They were allowed to act this way because it's all part of God's great plan to have his created beings self-segregate into two groups. One group that wants to be with God for all eternity, and another group that does not. To implement this plan, God had to teach people and angels about good and evil so that we can know and love the good while learning to recognize and hate the evil. Or, if you're on the other side, you can know and love the evil while learning to recognize and hate the good. It is a gift of God that can only come through the exercise of free will. Yes, free will is real. It is not a disposable concept that interferes with good hermeneutics. It is a necessary decision-making element within the moral, legal, and personal framework created by God. To make a moral choice, we must be able to discern right from wrong and good from evil, something that the animals are unable to do, which is why we were given dominion in the world over them. It's not that animals are unimportant to God, because nothing is unimportant to God, but animals are simply given over to dominion by humans because they are instinctive animals that do what is in their immediate self-interest. They don't perceive good and evil, and they don't make choices based on a moral distinctive. 
they can make a better or worse choice, but not in the moral context of good and evil. The gift of moral distinction was presented to humanity through that little incident in the Garden of Eden. Ironically, God used Satan to provide humanity with the ability to understand good and evil so that they could appreciate the moral difference between God and Satan and choose appropriately. Satan appears to have believed that he would doom humanity forever by getting them to sin in the garden, but God knew it was a necessary component to our ultimately being able to spend eternity with him. Free will to choose good and reject evil is the key to where we will ultimately spend our eternity, and it is a repeating theme throughout the Bible. God spent a lot of paper space pleading with us to choose the good. Here are just a few of many, many examples. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, Isaiah 5, 20. Turn away from evil and do good, Psalm 37, 27. And cease to do evil, learn to do good, Isaiah 1, 16 to 17. All of these pleadings would be pointless and cruel if human beings were not able to discern the difference between good and evil or if we did not have a free will to make a choice. Pretty much everything that happens in the Bible all the way to the end of the book incorporates some element of this good versus evil theme. Let me add at this point that recognizing and responding to good and evil is not about saving ourselves. It is a pre-salvation imperative. I often hear people say that God has to save us because we're spiritually dead and can't save ourselves. We contribute nothing to our salvation. However, I believe that's a misnomer. This idea that we are dead in our sins, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.1, does not mean that we are spiritually dead and cannot respond without God's help. To be spiritually dead, our spirit would have to cease to exist, which does not happen because once God gives us a spiritual gift, he does not take it back. Besides, a body with a dead spirit is impossible. It is the spirit that gives life, John 6.63, and our body receives life from the Holy Spirit through our spirit. That's what spirit is. It is life's connection to God, which includes both physical and spiritual life. To be dead in our trespasses and sins also does not mean that our soul is dead or that our heart is dead. A dead soul is also impossible for the same reason as spirit, and the Bible does not speak of a dead heart, but a hard heart. The phrase, dead in our trespasses and sins, cannot therefore mean some kind of inability to respond, as is often claimed, because we always have the ability to respond as long as we are conscious and breathing. What it means is that we were adjudged judicially dead. It is a legal term. God is all about governance, and part of governance involves the creation of rules. Violation of rules or laws leads to punishment, and in the case of the violation of God's laws and rules, God does not need the spectacle of a trial to get at the truth. He knows all things, and therefore does not need to go through a judicial process to discover it. Our sins have already convicted us of the crime of violating God's law, and as a result, once we commit the sins, we are essentially just waiting for the penalty to be imposed. If the penalty of sin is death, as God testifies that it is, then once we sin, we are as good as dead, judicially. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But the good news of the gospel is that we can be saved from the judicial punishment through the sacrifice made by Jesus Christ, who took the punishment for our sins on our behalf. We can be saved, that is, if we will accept the offer of Jesus Christ. Jesus saves, but we must accept the salvation. Jesus already did the work needed for our salvation, but we always have the ability to respond to good and evil and to choose Christ or reject him. That is not to say that God does not prod and poke us to respond to his son. He does a lot of prodding and poking, and sometimes it works. When God prods, we have the option to respond or not to respond. The mystery that is not explained in the Bible is why some people choose to respond and some people do not, and it has nothing to do with predestination. The passages about predestination are not referring to salvation as they are normally interpreted, but they refer to a special gift within the broader context of salvation. The reason the apostles continually admonish us not to lose the prize that is set before us, as in 2 John 1.8, 1, 1 Corinthians 9.25-27, Philippians 2.16, Colossians 2.18, etc., is because the prize is contingent on our choices and behaviors 
after salvation. Salvation is contingent only on believing in and confessing the Lordship of Jesus Christ, as explained in John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Romans 10.9, which says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. There is nothing in those passages about running a race to secure salvation or everlasting life. Everlasting life is a great gift of God, but it is not the greatest gift. The prize is something greater even than that. It is a special status within the eternal kingdom of Christ. All the talk about election in the Bible has nothing to do with salvation and everything to do with the prize, because the prize is of even more value than everlasting life, if you can imagine. That distinction aside, what is crystal clear from Scripture is that God is not going to force a person into his kingdom against that person's will. That is why the Bible, from beginning to end, constantly pleads with us to come to God through Jesus Christ while there is still time. Anyone can come to God, as Jesus affirmed in Matthew 7, 7-8, because he opened the door of opportunity to the whole world. He said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. The context of that passage is entering the kingdom of God simply by wanting to be there and asking Jesus to make it happen. And again, in a slightly different context, those Christians who miss the rapture at the end of the age due to their spiritual condition will still have a chance to enter the kingdom of heaven if they recognize their spiritual state and beg God to change it. The context of the Revelation passage is the churches, which symbolize future Christians who will be living in the lead-up to the Great Tribulation. In this passage, the previous church, the Church of Philadelphia, is the rapture church. That's when Christians who are judged righteous in Christ are taken away from the earth prior to the unleashing of God's wrath. But there will still be people who call themselves Christians who remain behind, and it is those Christians whom Christ addresses in this last church, the Church of Laodicea. At the end of his criticism of that church, he makes the following promise in Revelation 3, 20-21. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, we always have a choice, even those who have heard the gospel of Christ and failed utterly to live up to it. Everyone has a choice, from the person who has never heard the gospel of Christ to the person who has been raised in the church from infancy. The only difference is the amount of knowledge we possess about God and Jesus Christ and our familiarity with the Bible. The more familiar we are with Christ and the Bible, the more likely we are to seek the kingdom of God. Hence, the commandment for Christians to go and spread the gospel of Christ in order to make more disciples. So here we are almost a quarter of the way into the 21st century in a country that is being, by every objective measure, ripped apart around us in real time. The choice that we have to choose good and reject evil is exactly the same as it has been before. The question that trips up the people of this age is not so much whether to choose good or evil, but what constitutes good and evil. God works to teach us the truth, and Satan works to teach us lies. That's pretty much it. As Paul said about the confused people of this and every age, they exchanged the truth for a lie. Jesus explained why they do this. He said, Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Some people practice evil because they love it, and some people lie because it justifies the evil that they love. The problem is that their heart is wretched and evil and deceptive, and there's nothing they can do to change it. But God can. Men are not helpless in the face of an evil and wretched heart, or God would not be able to punish them for being evil. There would be no moral culpability if men could not recognize the evil in their own heart. We would just be an animal and act like one. The fact is that every human being has several tools at his or her disposal to recognize that he or she possesses an evil and wretched heart. We can use reason to determine it. It says in Isaiah 1.18, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. 
we could compare our life to a set of standards, such as in Proverbs. In Proverbs 1, verses 2 to 4, it says, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. That's the purpose of Proverbs. Or we could just listen to our conscience. It says in Romans 2.15, Their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. God uses many tools to get our attention and cause our heart and our head to reach out to Him. All we have to do is appeal to God to change our heart, and He will honor our request. We can't change our own heart, but we can ask God to do it. To incentivize people, God has explained the ultimate inducement of eternal life with Him or eternal death in hell if we choose Satan. The condemnation of men is based on their refusal to even ask God to change their heart, which those on Satan's side will not do because they love their evil too much and they don't want to give it up, whether they associate it with Satan or not. Postmodernism says that you have your truth and I have mine, and nary do the two meet. It is a demonic philosophy that claims our personal truth is our castle, which offers us the illusion of protection by keeping us from perceiving any flaws or deficiencies that might necessitate a change in our heart. Do you see how smoothly Satan and his human minions can use a good-looking, reasonable-sounding lie to gaslight a person and keep them far from God? I once asked a pastor his opinion of the biggest problem facing America. He said, pride, I suppose. I replied, I disagree. I think it's postmodernism. He looked at me like I had two heads and then just looked kind of puzzled. Pride is certainly at the root of all the problems we have before God, so his was a good, if incomplete, answer. Pride burdens us with severe and debilitating personal problems before God, but it doesn't create the kind of systemic problem that has gripped this nation and others. What has created the societal problems of this age is a refusal of people to see truth, and they refuse to see truth because postmodern philosophy has taught them they don't need to see it or even recognize that it exists. Their truth is sufficient, they are taught, and their truth is good. That is a lie, of course, as the truths that they are encouraged to adopt are the ones that are designed to help the globalists achieve dominion over the world and its people for their own glory and pleasure. Lenin called these people useful idiots because they were useful to his seizing power, but they were too stupid to see that he would eliminate them once he consolidated the power he craved. People who believe that their truth is all that matters are not the kind of people that power-obsessed tyrants want to keep around. They only want to keep the people who accept the tyrant's version of truth and usually only the ones who accept it openly and enthusiastically. Satan's empire is built on a mountain of lies and his substitute Jesus, the Antichrist, will form a government that will reflect all the essential characteristics of Satan, even more so than any of the evil empires of the past. And what are those essential characteristics again? Satan is a liar, a thief, and a murderer. A government formed around these three values is looming on the horizon, and its objective is to literally transform all life on this planet into something that is not created by God, but by man. The Apostle John, the author of Revelation, wrote in Revelation 13:18, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, there are all kinds of theories as to what John meant by this number 666. John, of course, was receiving this prophetic revelation from an angel sent by Jesus Christ, so he was merely the recorder of the information, not the source. He may not have fully understood what the number meant when he wrote it down, but he clearly understood the number because he conveyed that certainty to Polycarp, one of his disciples and a bishop of Smyrna, who himself conveyed that information to Irenaeus, who was ordained by Polycarp. In his paper titled Against Heresies, Irenaeus evaluated a competing idea of the time that instead of the number being 666, it was actually 616. Irenaeus concluded that the number was 666, in part because that's the number that he found in, quote, all the most approved and ancient copies of the Revelation, end quote, and, quote, those men who saw John face to face, end quote. One of those men, of course, was his teacher, Polycarp, so we can be quite certain that the number is actually 666. The full meaning of the number must wait until the Antichrist is revealed, but let's identify a few features of it that are evident and important even today. 
God is big on numerical significance in the Bible, with numbers standing for specific ideas. These numerical identities are woven all through the text of the Bible, starting in the first book of Genesis and ending in the last book of Revelation. Some are easier to see than others because they are important features of God's revealed word. The most important number, of course, is seven, being the number of spiritual perfection. It is God's number, and it is always used to signify divine identities and conceptual perfections. Man is made in God's image, but man is not God because we lack something. Numerically, if we have seven marbles that signify divine perfection and we take away one marble, we will have a pile of marbles that are less than divinely perfect. Six is seven that lacks spiritual perfection, which means that sin is present. So six is man's number. Man made his appearance on, in the Bible on the sixth day of Genesis 1. He had six days of labor appointed for him to work. It was not until the seventh day, God's day, that he could rest. The sixth sin is the worst sin man can practice against other people, namely murder. The sixth clause of the Lord's Prayer references sin. Cain, who murdered Abel, has his lineage traced only to the sixth generation. Six times in the Bible, men accused Jesus of having a devil. Such an accusation against the Son of God is not only fallacious, but blasphemous and symbolizes man's struggle against Jesus. Interestingly, the number six in this context appears in separate incidents across four books, with two of the books, Mark 3.22 and Matthew 12.24, recounting the same incident. The others were different incidents in John 7.20, John 8.48, John 8.52, John 10.20, and Luke 11.15. So the number six carries the symbology of sin and rebellion against Jesus Christ, but in ancient Hebrew, a threefold repetition of an idea is a way of placing great emphasis on the idea. Just as the principal attribute of God is not love, 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 but rather holy, 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 the principal attribute of the Antichrist, as recorded in his number 666, is sin, 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 and enmity against Christ, against Christ, against Christ. If the Antichrist is all about sin and Christ enmity, then the world must be prepared to embrace sin and Christian enmity. What better way to prepare for the Antichrist kingdom than a campaign of officially sanctioned, governmentally encouraged and condoned sin and rebellion against God and Christians? To usher in this age of sin and rebellion with energy and vigor, America offers its citizens the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party platform can be likened to coffee, strong and black, but for those who prefer their coffee light and with sugar, they can select the Republican Party. It's the same thing, but softened and mellowed with additives. Consider for a moment just a few of the Democrat Party's heartfelt values, ones they are actively implementing at every level of society, with Republicans making few disagreeable noises to oppose them. Democrats believe it is right and just to discriminate against one skin color for the benefit of another skin color, as long as it is the right skin color that benefits and the wrong skin color that is punished. The Bible says to treat every person as if they are better than ourselves. The Democrats believe that we should erase all borders, but it was God who established them in the first place. The Democrats believe it's right and just to deprive people they oppose of free speech, but right and just to defend the speech that the Democrats like. God says, don't judge hypocritically. Democrats are unable to tell the difference between a man or a woman, or even define the terms, yet feel entitled to force their confusion onto the rest of society at the threat of imprisonment for noncompliance. God said he made man and woman, male and female. It seems pretty straightforward. Democrats believe in the right of mothers, whatever they are, to kill children up until 30 days after the child's birth and maybe longer. God said, don't murder. Democrats believe that children should be openly sexualized by age two and that sex between adults and children is just fine. God said, do not commit adultery, and that includes rape. Democrats believe that consensual sex between anyone is fine under any circumstances, whereas God said only sex between married couples is acceptable. Democrats believe that God is a woman, whatever that is, and that they can alter and change what God says at any time if it is needed for social justice. The Bible says, he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not see the kingdom of heaven. Democrats believe in glorifying sexual sin and making a month-long celebration of sexual perversion. God said, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, fornication, and any other sexual sin is wrong, and men acting like women is wrong, and women acting like men is wrong. 
Democrats believe in incarceration without trial for those who offend the Democrats in power. God said, do not bear false witness. Democrats believe in the right to bodily autonomy when it comes to putting any substance into their bodies they wish. God said, treat your body like the temple to him. On the other hand, Democrats believe there's no right to bodily autonomy when it comes to not putting substances into it that they want you to put into it. The Bible says all ethnic groups will be deceived by the pharmaceutical companies. Okay, it says pharmacia, but it's the same thing. Democrats believe in the right of the government to wage war without end, the right of their paramilitary protest organizations to wage chaos without punishment, and the right of political leaders to lie without consequence. God says that the godless will be punished. Democrats do not believe in your right to bear arms, your right to form a militia to defend a community, or your right to publicly criticize their armies, paramilitaries, or any of their decisions. Nehemiah said that those who were rebuilding the temple had the right to defend themselves from those who wished them harm. That is just a short list of the values of the Democrat Party and their little brother, the Republicans. So America and the greater world through America is being softened up to accept an explosion of sin and destruction that is approaching from just over the horizon. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees sought after a sign. Well, these days, we don't have to seek after signs. They're everywhere. For example, by now, the entire world is aware that Donald Trump has been indicted on trumped-up charges of espionage over some marginally classified documents that he had in his possession in Maro Largo, Florida. This is a charge that carries with it a potential 80-year prison sentence. Keep in mind that a president is legally able to classify or unclassify any document they want. That has been interpreted with past presidents to mean when they leave office, they can take with them classified documents that they keep wherever they want, often at their homes or in presidential libraries. Obama did the same thing, but to a much greater degree than Donald Trump. Obama took whole files of documents. The Bushes did the same thing. Even Joe Biden was recently found to have had classified documents scattered all over his great many homes, and they came from a period when he wasn't even president. But for some reason, only Donald Trump is being charged. That's not surprising, given the recent lawlessness of this government and its obvious plan to weaponize every aspect of the system. But the arrogance and hubris of these people is almost beyond belief. Right after he was charged, Hillary Clinton wore a hat in front of the adoring press that read, But the emails, with a smug look on her face, mocking Trump and the American people. Hillary Clinton, while Secretary of State, illegally operated a parallel private email server in her home that violated all kinds of federal national security laws. When it was discovered, she made sure that it was destroyed before any federal agent got around to seizing it. She was given a court order to turn over her emails to the federal government, but instead elected to purge them from all of her devices, destroying several phones in the process. It was an act of overt lawlessness and an obvious attempt to obstruct justice, yet nothing was done to prosecute her. Still, when Donald Trump was charged, she saw fit to brag and mock by wearing a hat that showed him who had the real power in Washington. The Clinton crime family is so untouchable because it is protected by the federal deep state mafia, which is coming after Trump. The American government is no longer controlled by Americans. It is controlled by a mafia. Those in charge have rigged the system so that their power can no longer be challenged. They made sure of that in the last election. Their crimes are so vast and obvious at this point that they cannot allow real opposition to take power, so you can be sure that all future elections will be selections, and anyone in any position of power in Washington will be controlled, either directly or indirectly. America is fallen is fallen, and what we have today is a front puppet government that is being controlled by a shadow government that we do not see, and I believe that the Clintons, Obamas, and Bidens control much of the show. But the real powers are not here in America. The real powers are the ones who control the governmental puppets of the world and are still hidden in the shadows. But their operatives are now out in the open, and the Clintons and the Bidens and the Obamas are just some of them. It's time to turn our attention to the unfolding plan that will lead to the unveiling of an Antichrist sometime in the not very distant future. It involves the United Nations, CERN, the pharmaceutical companies, the American military, demons, artificial intelligence, and synthetic biology. 
It gets very complicated and can seem overwhelming for people who are not familiar with these things, so part of the challenge is to distill it down to the essence of what we need to know. It's a challenge for me as the content producer, mostly because it takes a long time to do that. But hang in there. It's going to be a very interesting process and an important one because there are decisions we have to make in our immediate future that will depend on our understanding what they are doing, why, how, and their ultimate objective. The restrainer still restrains, but at some point that restraint will be lifted and literally all hell will break out on Earth. This and most other podcasts may come to an end at that point. If we are still here when that happens, we will need to know what to do and how to protect the ones we love from the evil diabolical plans of the enemy. If we are gone, then we hopefully will have prepared something to help those who remain because they're going to need some framework to understand what's going on and how it relates to God and the Bible. Mostly, they're going to need to know that they are going to have to face a hard decision that will affect their eternity, a decision that will not be easy or pleasant to make. It will be much easier to make, however, if they are prepared for that eventuality. So I believe it's our job to do something now that might help the people of that day, like maybe prepare something that will help them find God in Jesus Christ when hell is raging around them, especially when they're forced to confront the face of evil and when the Bibles have been taken away. But unfortunately, we're out of time for today, so the unveiling of all this will begin next episode. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and punch that sign, symbol, or button to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and undergroundchristian.net. Don't go to undergroundchristian.com or undergroundchristian.anything else. It's undergroundchristian.net. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. But honestly, I, you know, go to that thing once in a while and I, I don't think I've ever gotten an email. So if I don't respond, then immediately hang in there. Oh Lord, help me in this upcoming week to put together a podcast that will be both entertaining and enlightening for your people because the topic is so important to those who are in your kingdom or who may be considering asking your permission to enter your kingdom. That, of course, should be the ultimate goal of all people. But sadly, there are some who prefer the spirit of darkness and deception to the spirit of light and truth. We pray for them to see the truth, to pursue you and your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray for us to view them not as your enemies, but deceived brothers and sisters whom we have to reach. Give us the courage and wisdom this week to reach somebody with a gospel of hope and peace.